On today's Exploring History podcast, we'll look at a sermon that explains the world. Welcome to Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. The large crowd fell silent as the stranger in town stood to speak. This was the culmination of weeks of controversy and animated discussion as the listeners tried to fit the stranger's message into their worldview, but found it difficult to do so. Now the stranger stood before the group of men who would decide whether they would give serious consideration to his message or whether it was just another one of those wild ideas that passed through the city from time to time. When the Apostle Paul spoke before the Areopagus in Athens, Greece, as recorded in Acts chapter 17, he explained the new message that he had been presenting in the city. From Paul's day to our own, people have often seen this sermon delivered in the midst of the highly respected and long-standing body as a prime example of how to present the gospel to a pagan audience. Today, we'll look at it as an inspired explanation of God's sovereignty over the world. Athens had been the intellectual capital of the Mediterranean world for centuries. By Paul's day, the golden age of Athens was long past, as were the lives of the great philosophers Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Rome was the undisputed world superpower now, but most people in the Mediterranean world still saw Athens as the hub of intellectual activity. Paul had come to Athens because Jewish opponents in another Greek city, Berea, had stirred people up against his message about Christ. A group of friends had escorted him to Athens and left him there until two of his fellow evangelists, Silas and Timothy, joined him. Paul had faced opposition in Thessalonica and Berea, but that did not stop him from continuing to teach others the truth that had changed his life. Let's pick up the story as Luke tells it in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. The scenes that Paul beheld as he walked through Athens stirred his spirit within him as he considered the many idols in the city. This intellectual capital of the world had failed to grasp the central truth of the universe, namely the reality of the one true God. 
The Athenians were, for the most part, pagans who believed in many gods and who were groping for the spiritual truth that lay behind the world they knew. Paul wanted them to know the truth that God had shown to him, the truth that sets people free. The Areopagus was a geographic feature of the city. The word means hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war, the equivalent of the Roman god Mars. The Romans knew the site as Mars Hill, which is the way that the King James Version of the Bible renders it. The Council of the Areopagus was a body of men who passed judgment on the ideas that people discussed in Athens. The council decided whether any new teaching was intellectually healthy and should be permitted. They were a kind of censoring group for the thought world of the city. The council had originally met on Mars Hill, but in Paul's day, except in a few rare instances, it met in the royal porch in the Agora or marketplace in Athens. Even though it had come to meet in a different location, the council kept its original name. Athenians had been surprised at Paul's teaching in the Jewish synagogue and in the marketplace in Athens because he had been expressing some new ideas, namely that Jesus was the Son of God and that Jesus had come back to life after being dead. These ideas were so unusual to Athenians that some thought Paul was preaching about two new gods, Jesus and resurrection. Both concepts were strange to the Greeks. The idea that the one true God could come to earth in the form of a man was completely foreign to the Greek worldview. In their minds, many gods existed, and although their gods sometimes took human form, the idea of incarnation, God truly and fully becoming man, was alien to their thinking. Resurrection to the Greek mind was also impossible. The Greek philosopher Aeschylus had written, Once a man is dead and the ground drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. Some Epicurean philosophers and some Stoic philosophers had heard what Paul had been teaching, and they couldn't figure him out either. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophies were two of the leading schools of philosophy in Athens at that time. Zeno of Cyprus, who lived from 335 to 263 B.C., taught in the Stoa Poikile, Painted Hall, in Athens, and thus his philosophy became known as Stoicism. To Zeno, reason was the god who guided the universe. To live in accordance with reason meant living a reasoned, rational life. The goal of mankind, Zeno said, should be to live a resigned, passive life, putting aside all impulses and emotions. Another philosopher, Epicurus, who lived from 341 to 270 B.C., had taught that the highest good mankind could pursue was to avoid pain and suffering. Some of their opponents ridiculed this idea and claimed that Epicureans only wanted to live for pleasure, but actually the movement taught the value of living a simple life free from the cares of this world. Both of these philosophies, and the many philosophies and religions that men have devised before and since, have been human attempts to determine what we are to make of this world in which we live and how we are to live in it. We have an amazing world, 
full of fascinating people, places, things, ideas, and ways that things work. But the central question with which many people wrestle is, what is the ultimate purpose of it all? The Epicureans, Stoics, and many others have attempted to give an answer to that question. Paul appeared to be offering one more idea about the ultimate purpose of our world, and his idea was one that many Greeks simply could not fathom. What he taught was so different from the typical philosophies and beliefs of that day that people had a hard time understanding what he was saying. As is so often the case when people don't understand or don't want to understand a new message, those who heard Paul attacked the messenger. To the Epicureans and the Stoics, Paul was a babbler, someone who picked up stray ideas like beggars picked up rags and tried to stitch them into a philosophy that simply did not make sense to them. Paul's message was not about using a little more reason or pursuing a little more pleasure, as the philosophers suggested. Instead, his message offered a completely new view of the world, a new way for people to live in it, and a new idea about where it was all headed. As a result, skeptics in the city took him before the council of the Areopagus to try to determine the exact nature of his strange new teaching. The Athenians were much like many people today who want to hear and discuss new ideas. The 24-hour news cycle and social media bombard us with speculation, the results of modern scientific research, and the latest political opinions, some that are true and some that, well, aren't. People love to hear this kind of thing and to offer their own perspectives on all of this. At the end of the day, however, just talking about the news doesn't accomplish much. We need to analyze the news from a biblical worldview. At this point, let's read Paul's complete sermon. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men 
by raising him from the dead. Now let's talk about what Paul said. Paul began by complimenting the Athenians for being a religious people. They had a deep interest in religious matters, as evidenced by the many idols and temples in the city. However, their religiosity was unfocused and in the end mistaken, because they believed in many deities, except, ironically, the one true God. Paul noted the altar dedicated to an unknown God, and then proceeded to introduce the Athenians to the God they did not know. Paul spoke from a God-centered worldview. He said that one God, the only true God, created the world and everything in it. God is the source of the world in which we live. Whereas Athenians believed that they sprang from the soil of Attica, Paul told them that God is really the giver of all life. The Athenians placed great importance on making sacrifices to the gods. But since the one true God created everything, he did not need anything from man. The apostle then referred to the biblical story of creation when he explained that from one man and one woman has come every nation, every ethnic group there is. God made mankind to live on all the face of the earth. In other words, to interact with the world. God has appointed for the nations their times, the periods in which they have lived, their rises and falls, and their locations, as he put it, the boundaries of their habitations. In other words, the world is under his sovereignty. God made humans to interact with the world, to work, invent, create, achieve, and relate to one another. As wonderful as those activities are, however, they are not our highest purpose. They are not worthy of us as people made in God's image who have an eternal destiny. God made mankind to seek Him and to know Him. This is not an impossible quest, because He is not far from every person. That is to say, finding Him and knowing Him are possible. After all, as the poet Epimenides of Crete said, in him we live and move and have our being. And, as the Greek poet Aratus said, we are all the offspring of God. The psalmist said, it is he who has made us, and not we ourselves, Psalm 100, verse 3. When the Greeks and others devised belief systems that attempted to explain the origin of the earth and mankind, they were, in a sense, trying to create themselves, to devise their own creation story. What they needed to learn, and what people today also need to learn, is that we originated with God, not in a human-imagined Big Bang, or as the byproduct of a war among the gods. The two pagan Greek poets whom Paul quoted at least understood the truth to this extent. Seeking God gives meaning and context to our quest for knowledge in this world and knowledge about this world. Any other perspective or worldview misses this meaning. As evidenced by their quest for knowledge and their understanding of architecture and other elements of the world in which they lived, the Athenians understood something about how to interact with the creation. Paul wanted to teach them how to interact with the Creator. As God's offspring, we have a spiritual nature. We can think, reason, and create. 
we are responsible for how we live. Overall, however, we people, including the Greeks, have failed to live as we should. Those religious Athenians said they were seeking truth. That was the purpose of the Socratic method of seeking truth by asking questions. But the Athenians had not found truth yet. They were still groping. Paul wanted to direct their quest toward the proper goal. Trying to find our way by probing our own understanding is not the way to find the truth. We need to trust in the Lord, the one who is outside of ourselves, and not lean on our own understanding, as Solomon said in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. The Athenians' central failing was their perception of God. We ought not to think that humans can represent the one true God by an idol made of gold, silver, or stone. Idols represent false gods. Since we are God's offspring, and since we are spiritual beings, God must be more than an object that people make from physical materials. Those materials from the earth have their proper purposes and uses, but those purposes do not include bearing the divine likeness. Human beings are made in the image of God, and nothing else is. Paul told the Athenians that God was willing to overlook the times of ignorance, and the Greeks confessed their ignorance by having an altar to a God they did not know. But now they could know the truth, because Paul was telling them the truth. The time had come for all people everywhere, including the wise and accomplished Greeks, to repent. The time of ignorance was past, and the time of accountability had come. God has planned a day ahead of us in which we shall face His judgment. This means that our world has a destiny. It is headed somewhere. Time is not just going through ever-repeating cycles. The interactions of man with his world, of man with man, and of man with God all have a point, a day of reckoning. God has appointed the judge that all people will face on that day, the man he raised from the dead. So Paul circled back around to the idea of resurrection and explained its meaning with regard to Jesus and its significance for him as judge of the world. Not one of the false gods in the whole system of Greek deities had the responsibility to judge the world. The one whom God raised from the dead has this responsibility and he will carry it out. Now let's read what happened when Paul finished his speech. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. When Paul finished, people had various reactions. Some mocked him for talking about resurrection. They knew that Paul was Jewish, and the typical Athenians would have seen Paul's message as simply Jewish foolishness, and something that didn't fit at all into any Greek philosophy, as Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. Some seemed open to further discussion. A few joined Paul and believed, including one of those on the council of the Areopagus. People have made these different responses to the gospel, mocking rejection, a desire to know more, and acceptance and faith, 
ever since. Paul delivered his message in the marketplace of a great city, surrounded by the works of man, in the midst of an accomplished culture, and in response to religions and philosophies that people had created. Athens contained a multitude of ethnic groups, Greeks, Jews, God-fearing Gentiles, and many others. Those who believed Paul's message became members of a new people group, one that had come to be called Christians. Paul spoke to people who had a particular worldview, and he introduced another worldview to them. That new worldview said, and continues to say, that mankind's greatest achievements in this passing world will ultimately be meaningless without a submission to and relationship with the one true eternal God. Greek philosophy was unable to change people and to confront the realities of sin and death, but Jesus confronted and conquered these realities. The amazing achievements of ancient Athens and the amazing achievements of modern man will one day rejoin the dust of the earth on which they were achieved. As we live in this world, we who believe in Christ anticipate living forever in the heavenly city with the one true Maker of all. This podcast is largely taken from a lesson in the Notgrass High School curriculum exploring world geography. It is one of the lessons that build a Christian worldview in that curriculum. I'm Ray Notgrass. Thanks for exploring history and the message of the gospel with me today. This has been Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, and please leave a rating and review so that we can reach more people with our episodes. If you want to learn about new homeschool resources and opportunities from Notgrass History, you can sign up for our email newsletter at exploringhistorypodcast.com. This program was produced by me, Titus Anderson. Thanks for listening.